Hello and welcome to Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I am joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Big time! And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. Jotty Dotty, Crotty Dotty, Motty Potty. And we are discussing <laughs> our all-time top 100 video games. This week we have our number 62s, but before we do that... Shall we spend some time in the company of Hercule Poirot or perhaps Miss Marple? Let's just crack on with the Agatha Quizty. <laughs> okay, great. The score is currently 1817 in favour of Minty. Really? It's not fair. On the first day of its existence, oh, the original Pong game broke down. Why? Did it overheat? Whoa. No. Because somebody got too many points. It's good, but it's not right. Ah, uh, well. I'm going to give you guys one more guess, and whoever I deem to be the closest <laughs> is going to get the point. Ugh. Okay, someone just got too excited and waggled their joystick too hard. That's your guess? <laughs> yep. <laughs> is it because the player won and there was no, like, you win screen? No. <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to give the point to Chris. The answer is its coin box was overstuffed with quarters. So essentially, it had been played too much, which could have resulted in it overheating. That's my logic. Okay. Okay, I'll have that. Well, yeah, you're not thrilled about it, though, are you? But then it's because probably because you only didn't earn it, which, in a way, you did not. <laughs> 18 all! <laughs> so, what have we been playing this week? Ooh, what have we been playing, Jonathan? Well, I'll tell you something that has happened. We have had the release of Apple Arcade, Apple's new subscription service for games on the App Store. But it's not just games on the App Store, because the games work on your iPad, they work on your Apple TV. They've also included functionality to play with a PlayStation controller or an Xbox controller. And essentially, they've just totally changed the market surely i mean because like there's a lot of games that are on the app store that are fully fledged console games yeah and now you can play them with a controller through your apple tv and you get like i don't know like 100 games for five pound a month and you, nobody's even paying that yet because you get the first month free wow it's bananas it really is uh, and i think like having played a bit this week on a few games this could be the the actual savior of of mobile gaming yeah and that's obviously like a big a big kind of hot take but like you said the subscription is nothing like a five a month is is pretty paltry and i don't know if that will change over time or whatever but for the amount of content that's that's really nothing two all the games like you said are are cross-platform at least like within the the apple ecosystem and i think it's cross save as well yeah it is yeah so you, you can pick up one on a on a macbook play it for a bit and then later come back to it on your phone or your apple tv and three the the games like you said they are proper premium experiences and they're the type of games that generally would run you at least the cost of the subscription or more each yeah like I, the games i've played i'd happily have paid a fiver for any of them yeah I totally agree. And it, it does seem that Apple seem to have mandated that the games now, they can't be free to play or feature kind of those in-app purchases. They have to be proper full-fledged games. And I mean, Apple are obviously not the first to offer a service like this. You have the, the Game Pass on the Xbox. You've got PlayStation Now. You've got uh, like EA Access on consoles as well for electronic arts games. But they all provide essentially a library of games for a fixed monthly fee, but on platforms where people still saw value in games. Yeah. And I don't I don't think that's been the case for four or five years on, on mobile devices. Yeah. And it, it's meant that a lot of games would launch, say, on the PS4 for a tenner, 
and then on the iPhone it would have to either be ad supported freebies or like a pound yeah and it just really devalued games completely yeah and I really really hope that if it's set up in such a way that developers are, are properly remunerated and get money and that the library remains as well curated as the launch lineup is it, it could be fantastic like I won't go on and on, about, on and on about the games I've played but what the golf uh, neo cab and sayonara wild hearts are three like excellent games that i'd be happy to have paid for on any platform yeah what the golf is absolutely absolutely superb it's brilliant and and the fact that all of these like you say are, are included in a subscription that's five pounds a month or free at first to begin with yeah with another like 90 odd games to pick up and play after that it's it's really insane value what the golf is the only one i've really put any time into so far and it's an absolute banger i mean yeah it's a gem oh. isn't it it's, it's a real gem so yeah it's going to be interesting to see how that continues and I look forward to getting some of your recommendations going forward as well. So keep them coming. So obviously the other big news, the big release of the week was, of course, the Link's Awakening remake on the Switch. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I believe we've all got it and we've all played it. Correct. Yes. I was a few days late starting for I was away over the weekend, but I've managed to get through, well, I'm onto the fifth dungeon now, Catfish's Moor. Lovely. And I am having a, a great time. It's weird because even, and I feel a little bit bad because they've obviously put an extraordinary amount of time and effort into remaking the game. But to be honest, it doesn't feel any different me playing this remake than it would be if I was playing an emulator of the original. I think that's to its credit, though, in a way. Yeah, and I, and I think that it's fantastic that they have managed to retain that charm and that same atmosphere and that same sort of sensation whilst obviously giving it... I mean, it's just gorgeous yeah. to look at. There's some really nice, just, just little quality of life things that made such a big difference and makes it really, you know fun to play hmm. only downside handheld little bit of frame slowdown but fairly regularly yeah and i think we've spoken about this before where i would much rather play it at 30 frames per second than have it flip between 30 and 60 I'd rather just have it capped that i'd be fine it's the yeah so i, I don't know whether or not they're going to patch that it's a little bit better in docked mode but still get it yeah it's still there it doesn't stop the game from being stunning but I mean it's not something that will yeah. turn you off the experience unless you're particularly sensitive to that kind of thing but but I reckon it probably comes from I, this is me guessing really but I would thoroughly have imagined this this project started life as a 3DS thing because it's Grezzo the team that did the Ocarina remake and the Majora's Mask remake and I, I feel like it was probably in the pipeline. And then when the Switch was announced, they kind of moved across. And I think it's their first HD game on, on any platform. Wow. And I, I, wonder, I wonder if there's a few kind of teething problems with that just because they, they are like newcomers, essentially, to, to working in you know this, this type of hardware. But I think because it's a first-party Nintendo game, there's a good chance it will get a polish up. Because like you say, at the moment, it's missing that Nintendo seal of quality almost on the top. Just that little bit, because we're so used to even like Nintendo first party games that you don't love, like say a divisive game like Arms that some people liked, some people didn't. No one could play it and say it felt like it wasn't smooth. Yeah. Like it wasn't kind of like the full package. And I think at the moment, Link's Awakening, unfortunately, has that just little blip that makes you think like this isn't this isn't quite where we expect for Nintendo. Hmm. What about you, Minty? You've played it the most out of any of us now. You're you're the uh, the furthest deep. Yeah, I've completely finished it. Oh well. <laughs> well, no, I don't have every heart piece just yet, but there are another 
tend to find. Mm. There was a lot more added. Yes, and a lot more seashells. Yes, I have. You found all 50, I want to say? I have found all 50 seashells, yes, yes. I think I've got most of the chambers as well. And to be honest, I think I'm done with it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because as it's a Game Boy game, really short. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of people saying, well... Is, is £50 worth it for a game you can beat in, oh. like, five hours? And that brings up, like, a, a whole discussion about, you know, how do you quantify an hour in terms of monetary worth? Yeah. yeah. And I think, yes, I did get uh, I did get that much enjoyment out of it because it was so good. And it's already, like, the baseline of enjoyment was already so high because mm-hmm. it's one of the, it, I think it was probably the finest Game Boy game. Yeah. So already it was it was it was standing on the shoulders of a uh, of a diminutive giant. <laughs> so just a, just a regular a man. man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but the the real issue that I have with Link's Awakening is when you go to uh, to Grandpa Ulrira's house mm. and uh, he's like, oh, 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 call, oh, call me from call, outside, call, please call me, and uh, and uh, and that's that. that that's that's his whole that's his whole own thing. That doesn't matter. I don't care about that. What I care about is the phone in his house. You pick it up and you get yes, it's the bucket mouse. Thanks for calling. Well, bye. And I thought, wow. This is this is very strange. Who is the bucket mouse? What do they do? Like, what, what's their what's their role in the uh, in the timeless struggle between the hero and uh, and Ganon, the embodiment of evil? Where where do they place in the in the Zelda timeline? Are they going to appear in a different game? Have they already appeared in a different game in the guise of an Easter egg? And uh, this game upon seeing it again, reignited that thirst for this knowledge of who, just who the Bucket Mouse is. Who is the Bucket Mouse? So I went online and I found out that um, it was a mistranslation and it was actually meant to be a Bucket Mouth, which is the name of a fish shop in Japan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm furious. I'm never learning a single thing again. (laughs) I'm done with knowledge. (laughs) Shall we move on to the rankings? Go on then. Starting this week, we have my game. What do the following have in common? An enchanted English walled garden, days of summer air and honeysuckled nights, the capricious dance of lavenders and cabbage whites glowing in the evening long-shadowed sun, a Middle English slang term for cunt. (laughs) Well, in addition to some of them being lyrics from a Marillion song, they are all the very definition of quaint. That's great. (laughs) Wow. Jeez. However, in my 60-second favourite video game, you will find no cream teas, windmills, flutterbys, or even stray female genitalia. But it is an adventure I would describe as quaint nonetheless. If you were to swap out fields of wheat for panoramas of scrapped metal and rubbish, swap your innocent daisy chain adorned protagonist for a charming rusty robot, then you could be getting close to describing Jakub Dvorsky's gorgeous point-and-click adventure, Machinarium. Oh, wow. So, I suspect that not many people will have heard of Machinarium, despite the fact that it's been released on pretty much every platform available. So let me give you a quick summary. You play as a robot called Joseph, 
who we find having been dumped onto the scrap heap. Uh, you piece yourself back together and make your way back to the city to foil the plans of the dastardly Black Cat Brotherhood who have, among other felonies, kidnapped your girlfriend, Berta. The story and your main character is all so beautifully innocent and pure and it means you're really rooting for your hero at every stage and that really propels you through the game. It owes a lot to its point-and-click ancestors, such as Day of the Tentacle, Simon the Sorcerer, but the puzzles the Machinarium have in the game are unique and make use of this world that's been created and wouldn't really work in another setup. And that sense of whimsy and charm, coupled with its slightly sinister and dark undertone as well means that yeah it, it had a real identity for example you could be trying to find a specific machine part that will allow you to get a coal-filled minecart to ascend up a tower so you can find a jerry can of oil to water a plant and use the results to trade for an item to take you to the next scenario and you essentially make your way through this world from puzzle to puzzle from scene to scene and there's some backtracking involved where you can return with a specific item to an earlier area and access some new things and backtracking is often said in a bit of a negative way in games oh you know there's a lot of lot of backtracking you know some fetch quests and all that but i i never minded that at all in this game because you just got to walk back through all these gorgeously painted and animated scenes as many times as the game required me to and it just never bothered me and the design of the game is utterly brilliant. It's a beautiful art style. It's that lovely kind of sci-fi that's lived in. So no highly polished metal doors and lasers. It's very much in the vein of Star Wars or Firefly or, or Wally. -E. This is a world in the future that has a huge past of its own and all the wear and tear to show for it. And despite being really, really beautiful, it's also entirely filled with desolation and abandonment, um, as well as brimming with life. We spoke a few weeks ago about the charm of having little touches in the background of games that really help bring the game world to life. And this game had, had so many little things going on. You could just stand still in the, like the central square of the town, and if you stood there long enough, you would see like... I don't know, maybe like a little mouse scuttling past, or a janky one-armed robot limping past who you might run into later down the line or even just seeing like bits of debris and scrap metal on the, the sides of the road or a robot's washing just hanging out on a line somewhere just wafting slowly in the breeze and just made every corner of this world feel real and realistic which was just gorgeous e even the secondary characters and background characters all felt like they had their own history that had led them to that point in the story as well characters such as Oh, there was like a small jazz band and I think I, I think you have to like find a dustbin or something to complete their percussion section <laughs> or even some simple-minded easily confused guards who you can trick your way around by creeping through the pipes beneath the prison they're guarding and pop up and move their sandwich or something and everything in the game from the smallest background detail to the, the biggest set pieces feels it just feels really deep and you know stacked with lore and it's a real triumph of, of game design and i have to pay service to a single factor that really elevated the game from being you know just another run-of-the-mill point-and-click adventure and that is the soundtrack by a chap called thomas uh, dvorak uh, not to be confused with the classical composer who shares his surname but I can tell you whose music I've listened to more. <laughs> the music just perfectly complements the style of the game. It's got some beautiful atmospheric tracks that 
underscore the story without overpowering them and also being haunting enough to stay in your head and take the experience to a new level there's a specific track on the soundtrack that i love called uh, the glass house and the butterfly which accompanies you searching through an overgrown greenhouse for a projector and some slides of some scientific drawings that is part of a puzzle you're trying to solve and it's the scene that i mean i think of most in the game and i could happily just stay in that scene listening to the music just admiring every pixel of its design and and to be honest i'm pretty sure i clocked up probably half of my overall playtime <laughs> in the game just standing still and reflecting it's absolutely brilliant there's this one moment in the track where oh this this chord almost just sort of dissolves as it reaches this point it's it's mind-blowing absolutely just oh. so yes beautifully innocent and pure utterly stunning to look at in every scene just a wonderful experience from start to finish it's not the longest of games but it is one of a small handful of games that as soon as i finished playing it i played through it all again immediately in the same sitting and i've played it through a handful of times since then as well i think the point and click games it's a genre that We've, we've mentioned once or twice and they, they're obviously not as popular as they were like in kind of the early 90s on the PC and stuff with the LucasArts stuff but what makes them work and, and what Machinarian does really well is they have to have identity and character I think that's a huge part of that genre yeah they have to either be like funny because of their writing or they have to have the sort of um, like unspoken kind of world of, of Machinarium to, to work well yeah and it's, it's a genre I still really like playing I, I really I really enjoy going back to this stuff but it's it's obviously just not as in vogue as it was when kind of like home PCs and CD-ROM stuff was massive. Yeah. And I think it's a shame because there's probably a lot of really talented artists and designers who who could make wonderful stuff within that type of game. And generally, it's just, it's not getting done. So it's nice to highlight the ones over the last few years that have really stood out and, and done something different. So moving on, we have Chris's game. Chris, can you please tell us about your 60-second favourite video game? No, I'll just get straight into it. I played GoldenEye. This is GoldenEye I'm talking about on the N64. I played I played <laughs> GoldenEye multiplayer with, with a friend on like a tiny CRT screen back in whatever year that was, when I was probably about 10 or 11. And I was so excited about the guns leaving bullet holes in the wall when you played multiplayer oh, that yeah. I ran home and told my mum. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, how often do games make you do that? <laughs> how often do you leave someone's house excited to go and uh, tell someone about it? When GoldenEye came out, it felt like something entirely new. And, and for me, like I'd played the tiniest bit of Doom on a, on a different friend's like DOS PC when I was a really small kid. But GoldenEye was probably the first like truly first person game that I remember seeing and and because of that at that age when I was like 10 or 11 it it was terrifying but it was mesmerizing like it's something that was completely new and and playing it at that age it it felt as immersive as like super hot VR is now in my 30s yeah like it, it was a very different experience but it, it totally absorbed me as a kid and I felt like you know I was holding the gun I was checking the objectives on my, on my little watch. I was writing poo <laughs> using bullet decals in, in like an empty multiplayer map. <laughs> you know, yes, you were. <laughs> and I mean, when I first played it, I don't even know if I'd seen the film GoldenEye, but I still felt like I was James Bond. And at that age, I don't necessarily think I even knew what that meant. <laughs> I, didn't what, I didn't know what the character was meant to represent. I, I didn't know what the point of any of it was. Pure misogyny. <laughs> exactly. That, that's basically the, the overriding theme, isn't it? And I mean, I think I would have struggled to speak as to if the game had any sort of filmic authenticity, but 
at that age, I had a gun. I could shoot a man's hat off. I could uh, shoot a lock off a gate. Oh, yes, you could. And I could just hop off a dam. And it's it's all good fun. And, I mean, it wasn't really until I bought my own secondhand N64, like three or four years later. And I was far more clued into, like, how the game might have fit within the plot of the film because I'd seen it. And I was, like, reasonably obsessed with Goldeneye as a film back then. And I got into the game in a much bigger way. But it's a game that at that age I was shit at, but I, I still really loved it. Thinking on it now, like historically, GoldenEye 007 as, as a game in the N64 is basically responsible for console first-person shooters as we know them today. Games failed to live up to the template that GoldenEye set for years. And I, I think it wasn't really until maybe Halo, being you know four years later, was probably the first proper GoldenEye killer on a, on a home platform. And even now there's games which we, we play, like first-person games, which don't have GoldenEye's unique flavor. GoldenEye has something that other games don't have, and they never really copied from fully because it's it's a really esoteric game that somehow became really mainstream. Yeah. And I think it's something that basically everyone at our age has played in some context, despite it actually being a really odd game when you kind of break it down. At that age, like you play the big stuff in the same way that now I'm, now I'm a teacher, kids just play Call of Duty, they play Fortnite, they play FIFA, and that's it. That's the big stuff that kind of does the rounds. And we were young, you know, you had the N64 was a big deal. People talked about Mario for a while. People talked about Goldeneye. These were the games that kind of did the rounds in the playground, as it were. But it's a weird game because it's it's a linear game that dresses up in essentially like non-linear sheep's clothing, as it were, that, you know, it's got this layered difficulty-based sort of objective system that gives the impression that you've got like real agency and choice over how you play the game. It's got, you know, odd independent camera movement controls that make all the stages feel much more open than its contemporaries like, like Chirok did at the time. It's, it's got maps as well that if you break them down now, it didn't feel odd when, when I was 10 or 14 or whenever I was playing this, but they were all were almost like livable spaces that had dead ends and generally games are not designed in that way anymore. And it also had, at least what felt like at the time, like passable, intelligent AI. It, it felt like, you know, enemies actually reacted to what you were doing. They rolled out of the way. They kind of got back up. It was all stuff that felt very, very new and different. And it, and it really stands aside. I remember um, shooting guards in the butt <laughs> and them sort of going, oh, and like jumping up a little, holding their butt where I shot them. You hardly see it. <laughs> you, you, hardly, you hardly saw it. Yeah, I mean... Like I say, as, as kids, we wouldn't have known that it was as strange a game as it was because it was just a shooty bang bang game that felt like you were in a movie. <laughs> and playing it now, like in 2019, it's it's surprisingly playable, like despite despite the fact it has a single digit frame rate. Like we talked about Link's Awakening, <laughs> like dro- dropping dropping from 60 sometimes with a little wobble. But Goldeneye, if anyone shoots a gun, is literally down to the sevens and eights. Like it's like a it's like a flick book. <laughs> <laughs> You play it on an N64, you play it on an emulator, it has an unthinkably awkward control scheme. Like every option feels weird, if only because you're shooting with your left hand, which is so uncommon now in modern games just because of how the N64 controller was. Yeah. But for all these weird parts of it, it's a game that has a true legacy. And and for our generation, you know, it sculpted the preeminent genre for the next decade. Like first person games became the big deal as soon as we had dual analog sticks on other consoles. I mean, it's Goldeneye, isn't it? <laughs> Everyone knows Goldeneye. And uh, it's it's a decent game. Yeah. Like it's, it's a strange one to talk about because it has such a weird aura around it that the people kind of put it up on a pedestal. But it is genuinely a good game. It, it did a lot for, for the industry. It did a lot for kind of the first-person genre. It did a huge amount for the N64 because it was, what, probably like the second best-selling game behind Mario, I think. 
and I think it, it does it deserves a place as, as being a really good game that if people haven't seen you almost owe it to yourself just to dig up footage for five minutes and just go oh that is a bit odd mm. <laughs> but it's it's something that I really enjoyed and uh, yeah every once in a while I might, might go back to and write poo on the wall again <laughs> <laughs> excellent I used to do the same with paintball mode turned on yeah I took my copy to my friend's house when we were 10 because he was like he was really good at it like he had it for an evening and he'd unlocked every single cheat for me but then he stole my copy of pokemon blue so if you're out there dean fuck you <laughs> i could just imagine you playing multiplayer and uh, meticulously writing <laughs> condom using your paintballs <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what he wouldn't be running home to tell his mother about that <laughs> <laughs> I do, me and mum used to play Goldeneye together. Well, as I know from our recent trip to Texas, your mother's rather good with a gun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, my, my father-in-law took uh, took us all out to a field somewhere. Yeah. And we, ju- we just shot a Glock at some paint cans. And my mum <laughs> could have been an assassin if she didn't choose to follow God. <laughs> <laughs> Straight out of Croydon. <laughs> yeah. So moving on... Lastly, we have Minty. Can you please tell us about your 60-second video game that you're dedicating to your dear friend, Dean? (laughs) Just remember, Dean, you're only one letter away from being dead. (laughs) Oh, very nice. Yeah. Oh, cold. All right, get ready for this. It's the second most recent video game on my list. A few weeks ago, I talked about a game from a particular franchise and how it translated the format of reaching a goal in a linear 2D environment to a 3D plane in the most faithful way, and how certain games that came before it in the series offered a more open-world approach to reaching your goal seemed like uh, the exception rather than the uh, upsettingly, in my opinion, rule. Let's put that to the side for a second and talk about South Korean cinema. Please let us. Are we going to talk about the work of Park Chan-wook? No, but we are going to talk about I Saw the Devil, which is a fantastic revenge film. It's either a spiritual successor or a love letter to the Vengeance trilogy. Highly recommended. Probably my favourite diarrhea-based film. The director described the lead performances... He described the two leads' performances as different kinds of rain. So the antagonist was a very fiery and powerful character and naturally described as a thunderstorm. Mm. Uh, But the, and I use this word very loosely, protagonist was more the kind of fine misty rain that uh, drives with a more clandestine relentlessness that goes by almost unnoticed until you're completely soaked. The sheer volume of collectibles in Super Mario Odyssey is much like that. Ah, boy. This time they're power moons. And your friend is a hat. <laughs> now, before this game came out, I remember it was shown at E3 or something like that. And uh, one of the moments that stuck with me was uh, somebody saying, like, Sony and Microsoft are wowing everybody with big technical uh, feats in their presentations, AAA titles full of big men with guns. And then Nintendo pop over and say, oh, you put your hat on the frog and then you are the frog. <laughs> and everyone loses their fucking minds. <laughs> it's true. And we did. We, we absolutely did. did. It was a fun mechanic that brought a new dynamic to the established 3D platforming series and took it to great new heights is what I would say if it hadn't been done better before by whoops that's a conversation for another time (laughs) not until 
February 2021. <laughs> I think I'm trying really hard to reminisce around this game because it's because because it's so new in the grand mm. scheme of things. I don't really have any sort of twee memories to bumble through on my way to making a barely cohesive point. Mm. Uh, I'm being silly, of course. I loved Mario Odyssey. Not enough not to trade it in, but it was uh, it was it was very slick and well designed, uh, with smooth and intuitive controls and very satisfying movement tech. Oh, jump, boy. throw hat, dive onto hat, jump off of hat. You've travelled half a mile. <laughs> it Loved is it. it is the greatest three D movement yes. in a game, yeah. without question. It is a, it's it, it's liquid. <laughs> Oh, I can't even. So tight, so tight. There's, there's nothing that feels as good. No. no. And so, sometimes when I was playing Mario Odyssey, I would lose 10, 15 minutes to achieving nothing just because I thought, I bet I can get from there to there without touching the ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was worried though, because they had that level set in a city where they were like real humans. Yeah, that was weird. But it was fine in the end. It was fine because in the end, they were just another species whose world you visited, like... Uh, uh, the snail-looking things in the water level, the forks that are also alive in the soup level, mm. um, the the sort of the Dia de los Muertos skeleton people in yeah. the desert, or that helpful cockatoo in the trilby that gives you hints. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so at the beginning of my spiel, I mentioned in a very roundabout way that Mario 64 had a much more open-world approach to levels. Say, you didn't have to beat the King bob in the first star of mm. bob Battlefield. You could have freed the chain chomp. You could have. That was your prerogative. Mario Odyssey takes that idea, prints it out, rolls it in a tube, and does a line through it. <laughs> There's so many moons, and you can get them in whatever order you want. To beat Mario 64, you needed 70, and there was another 50 after that. To get to the true final level in Odyssey, you need 500. And I think it goes up to 999? It does, because I did it. It's yeah. saturated. And that's okay. Never felt like you were just turning a corner and, whoop, there's another moon. Didn't really earn that. Yeah, you're right about that. It felt like a thousand achievements. Mm. Yeah. Like everything needed a little bit of, just a little bit, just, just, just a little bit of work to get to it. Yeah, you couldn't stumble across any of them. Not really, no, no. You could see them in the distance. Oh, you could. And then you could go there. Yeah, you could. Whether that was through uh, good old-fashioned platforming, the kind of gameplay that you'd expect a farmer to do, or some kind of puzzle involving uh, something that your hat friend helped you crawl into to take over its motor functions, <laughs> or uh, some kind of, I don't know, just some kind of secret passage, or a pipe. Sometimes one of the same. Yeah, secret pipes. Ooh. Some of the puzzles rift on Zelda A Link Between Worlds with the hieroglyphic... 2D projection drawing on the wall version of Mario. There were those like retro styled wall drawing bits, weren't mm, there? That yeah. was good. I like that. Yeah, yeah, I liked it too. There was a lot of stuff to get and a lot of ways to get it. Despite this, it never felt bloated or overwhelming. Good game. A very, very good game, I must say. It is uh, a game that I 100%ed in less than four days. Yeah, I mean, I didn't play it quite at the, the rapidity that you did. But I, I played Mario Odyssey for almost 70 hours on, on my save. And I reckon I, I was not having fun for maybe four minutes of that. Yeah. And those are the menus. Yeah. Very few games that have been as consistently joyful as Mario Odyssey was for me. Yeah, I 100% agree. So that wraps it up for another week. Another three games. Three, I mean, good games. Good games. First of all, we had Machinarium. 
And then we had... Goldeneye 007. Before finally... Soddy Moddy Udi. Brilliant. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you enjoyed any of our episodes, please do like and subscribe, share it on social media, leave us a review, look us up on TripAdvisor. You wish it hadn't. I mean, we won't be there. <laughs> If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that. You can find us on Facebook if you search for Our Three Cents. You can get involved in the conversation that we're having there. Or you can ask us a question that you might like us to answer in a future episode. Or you can reach out to us individually. You can challenge our opinions directly. One-to-one. Mano a mano. Stripped to the waist. To the death. You can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. You can find me at Chaz underscore Hodges. You can find me at Clement underscore Boo. And please do join us next week for a special episode about well-being and video games, which we're recording in support of World Mental Health Awareness Day. Goodbye. Goodbye.